So Ahab had made it back to Jezreel, his summer palace in Jezreel. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, including a detailed account of how he killed all the prophets with a sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this warning. May the gods judge me ever be so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life as you did theirs. So just as Ahab's heart remains hard and does not change after this encounter, Jezebel's heart even hardens more. And just like Pharaoh did not respond to Moses, Ahab and Jezebel is not responding to Elijah either. And so she gives this threat. Now what's interesting after everything that Elijah's gone through, he just stood against 400 or 850 prophets. He just slaughtered 400 of them. He just saw the power of God fall down out of the sky and hit the altar. And the people, like, almost in droves came back to Yahweh. He's also witnessed the resurrection of a child before that, the multiplying of flour and oil, all these kinds of things. And yet verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid of her. So he got up and he fled for his life to Beersheba and Judah. He left his servant there. And he went a day's journey into the desert. And he went and he sat down under a shrub and asked Yahweh to take his life. I've had enough, O Yahweh, take my life. After all, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. This one threat from one woman fills him with such fear that he becomes suicidal. That he runs for his life and he flees. This is not uncommon of prophets. When you read the stories of prophets, it is not uncommon that we hear over and over again that they just rather die than continue on. Jeremiah says it. Ezekiel says it. Other prophets say it. And so the, being a prophet had to, I mean, if you've ever led any kind of ministry and you're dealing with people who are constantly at you and picking on you and criticizing you. It can be very exhausting, let alone to have a king and a queen who wants to kill you on top of that. Even though these are prophets that have experienced the power of God, they're still human. They're still human. And Elijah and Jezebel, or sorry, Ahab and Jezebel carry very real power. They have slaughtered thousands of prophets of God so far. But here's what's interesting. He's also working out of a lack of sleep. He's working out of exhaustion. He's working out of emotional stress. He's also probably thinking that this probably was it. Now think about it. I don't know if you've ever played sports or any of that kind of stuff or done anything. But can you imagine, like, you've you've probably at least played sports or seen people who played sports or had children or friends who played sports. And you see them after they play a game. They're incredibly exhausted. They're worn out. Even if they've won, they just collapse afterwards. Now imagine playing a game and barely having anything left and you're barely making it to the end of the clock when it counts down or whatever. And then all of a sudden you find out you go into overtime. And then in some games that I've seen, you go into double overtime. If you really thought that you were winning and that all you need to do is just to get to the end of that clock and it would all be done and over with, and then you find out the last second's a tie, and then now you have to give even more energy and effort, that would be very exhausting. You would feel very much that this was it. This is all I had to do, and then you found out the game keeps going. And in ways, Elijah could probably be feeling this. We don't know what Elijah has been doing before this, before the three years of famine. But he has lived outside of his home with a woman that he barely knew for three years while there was a famine 
literally living on flour that was coming out of one jar. Meanwhile, he's hearing news all the time of people trying to kill him. He come back, comes back to find out many of the prophets have been executed and slaughtered. And he comes back and he thinks this is a Super Bowl. This is it. This is the contest that's going to end all contests. This is going to definitively clear up any confusion in everybody's mind that it's done and over with. And when it's all done, he finds out it's not over with. The hierarchy has not changed their mind. And they're still just as committed to his extermination as anything else. And at this point, he wants to quit. He wants to quit. It's like making it to retirement and finding out you can't retire. You're just exhausted. As Jerome T. Wallace says, the narrator's psychological insight is powerful. If this were a literal request, that is, if Elijah truly wished to die, then he would have no reason to flee from Jezebel. Elijah's words reveal something much deeper about him. His sense of hopelessness, of disillusion, and despair, and the futility of any further effort. So it's not that he literally wants to die. Nobody really literally wants to die. Okay, that's why there's pleads for help and people run away and they keep trying to do things. But what it shows is that he is absolutely defeated. He feels hopeless. He feels like there's nowhere to turn. This is exactly what Jezebel wanted. If you can't defeat them militarily, then destroy their morale. Richard Patterson says this, Probably Elijah played into Jezebel's hand. Had she really wanted Elijah dead, she surely would have seized him without warning and slain him. What she desired was Elijah and his God to be discredited before the new converts, who had aided Elijah by executing the prophets of Baal. Without a leader, a revolutionary movement usually stumbles and falls away. Just when God needed him the most, the divinely trained prophet was to prove a notable failure. She's trying to defeat the revolution's leader, not trying to kill him. That might just anger people and inspire, inspire more. But if your leader gives up and quits, that defeats the morale. And in fact, it will work because from this point on, Elijah will not really get committed to God. He will stay a quitter for pretty much the rest of his life. And not only that, when we learn about the 400 prophets that have been killed, when we get to chapter 22, we're going to find out that they've all been replaced. Because Elijah didn't keep doing what he was supposed to be doing. The one that he won, the win that he won at Mount Carmel is completely undone. It'll be completely undone. We will hear no news of what happens to the people of faith that turn back to God. There will be no evidence that idolatry has changed anything in the land. And the prophets that have been killed will be completely replaced. And Ahab and Jezebel will still maintain their power, abusing and oppressing people. Because Elijah is going to decide that he'd rather quit. He'd rather quit. And that's what we're going to see. That's what chapter 19 is all about. He is giving up because Jezebel successfully sapped all of his morale with her one threat. And so he flees. Now notice, every single time in the last chapter that it says that God commanded Elijah, it says that Elijah immediately obeyed. Yet Elijah runs all the way to Beersheba. God never told him to go to Beersheba. And then he runs, leaves his servant behind, like I'm done even discipling anybody. And he goes deeper into the desert. He is outside the promised land, basically. And he's running as far away from Jezebel 
and the Jezreel as he possibly can. And God never told him to go south. So this is not obedience to God. This is not obedience to God. So in this case, he's already doing what he's not supposed to be doing. He's running away from the enemy that he's supposed to be fighting. He's running away from the responsibility that Yahweh has given him. Yet notice how Yahweh responds. In chapter 19, 19, verse 5, He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub, and all of a sudden an angelic messenger touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals. Think bread, not like icing. On hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. Yahweh's angelic messenger came back again, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. So he got up and he ate and drank. And the meal gave him the strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So just as Jezebel sent messengers, Malach, to kill, to threaten him, God sends his own messenger, Malach, in order to comfort Elijah. Yahweh gets that Elijah is human. He gets that humans have emotions. He gets that they get exhausted. He gets that they come to the ends of the ropes. And so he is tired, he is exhausted, he is hungry, and he is lonely. And so what does God do? God tells him to sleep. And God feeds him miraculously. And God provides a companion through the angel to to be with him. And God meets all of his human needs. And he could have easily said, you're disobeying me. There's more work to do. Pop that femur back in your leg and get back on the field. Okay? I don't care what you're struggling with. But he doesn't say that. He says, here's some food, sleep, and here's my messenger to take care of you. But he says, but you're not done. I will comfort you, I will meet your needs, and I'll restore you, but you're not done. Now this is where a lot of people get confused. God says, eat and drink for the journey is long. And he goes all the way further south through the Sinai Peninsula down to... Mount Horeb, which we also know as Mount Sinai. Now, a lot of people think that's a good thing. He's going to Mount Sinai, and God's going to appear to him there. But notice that God never told him to go there. Yahweh never commanded him to go to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. When God said, eat and drink, your journey is long, he actually means go back north to finish what you're doing. Now, how do we know that? Because two reasons. When we get to Mount Sinai, God's going to come to Elijah and say, what are you doing here? Like, seriously, why are you all the way down here? Nobody has been at Mount Horeb for hundreds of years. This is a vacant, empty mountain. I haven't done anything here for years. I haven't been here for hundreds of years. All the actions up there. You are a prophet of the people. There are no people here. The people are up there. I almost could hear Yahweh just saying all this. And he's asked him several times, why are you here, Elijah? And then when Elijah finally says, I quit, I quit, I quit several times, God says, go back to Damascus and finish what you started. So the fact that God doesn't even know why Elijah's there, which he really does because God, but I mean for descriptive purposes, and the fact that he tells him to go back to the north means Elijah was never supposed to be there to begin with. You've ever wondered, like, what in the world does Horeb have to do with this story? It has nothing to do with it. Elijah is doing his own thing. 
Nowhere in this chapter does it ever say that Elijah obeyed God. Not once. His streak of obedience has been absolutely broken and decimated in this chapter. And so he goes down there. Now, why is he going to Horeb? Because Elijah is probably intelligent enough to figure out that he's like the new Moses. A lot of things in his life has looked like Moses' life. And just as Moses had said, I, 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 I can't do this anymore, God, out of the golden calf. This is a stiff-necked people. They don't even listen to me. I don't want to do this anymore. If you want me to do this, you've got to do something amazing. You've got to show me your glory. I want to see you. And so Moses went into a cave, and God revealed the glory of God to him. And Moses' appearance physically changed, and Moses was like a new man. So... Elijah realizing that he's kind of like the new Moses. A lot of things in his life have kind of matched up to that because he's a prophet, which means he does have incredible insight to who God is and what his will is, or he would have never been a prophet. And now he feels like giving up and he feels defeated. And his people have just worshipped idols and stuff too, just like Moses. And so he's thinking, I'm going to do what Moses does. I'm going to get recharged supernaturally. I'm going to plug myself back into Mount Horeb like Moses did. I'm going to get charged. And he goes into a cave just like Moses. And he's expecting God to continue the Moses theme. He's expecting God to do something amazing. There are many, many times that God has comforted, stayed with the prophets when they felt like dying and giving up. But he does not coddle to their desires. He does comfort them. He provides them. He walks with them, but he does not coddle them. And he does not let them to redefine the terms of how ministries are going to be. So even when you see in Jeremiah and all that kind of stuff, Jeremiah is like, I'm done. I quit. I'm not going to speak one more word of God ever again. And then the next chapter, Jeremiah is like, I try to keep my mouth shut, but the spirit overwhelmed me. And I can't help but talk and speak the message. And God comforted him and let him rest for a while. But then he says, what? I'm not going to coddle you. I called you for a reason. And so God is going to let him go down there, and God is going to do something, but he's going to do it on his terms. He's going to do it on his terms. So verse 9, Elijah went into a cave and he spent the night, and all of a sudden Yahweh spoke to him, Why are you here, Elijah? It's like me with my girls in the morning. Like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be putting your shoes on. Instead, you're over here playing with your animal in the living room. Like, what the heck? I've told you five times. And then you walk away two seconds later. What are you doing? Why are you upstairs in the bedroom rolling around on the floor? I told you to put your shoes on. And then you walk away and come back. What are you doing? Why are you playing with your rubber band necklace? I told you to put your shoes on. Okay? That's what's going on here. Okay? God is going to ask us multiple times, why are you here? I told you you should be up there. But I turned around and now you're back here again. Okay? What are you here for? I have been absolutely loyal, Elijah said to Yahweh. Even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement that they made with you, the covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword, I am alone and left. Now they want to take my life. Now, is that accurate? Some of it is. They have killed the prophets and da, 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 but is he alone? No. Elijah completely forgot. We already mentioned this at Mount Carmel, where he completely forgot about the hundred prophets that Obadiah was hiding 
But now he's completely forgot about all the people that he personally led back to Yahweh and he personally saw with his own eyes devote themselves to Yahweh. When you're depressed and you're lonely, your mind tends to rewrite history. And it's very easy to think, I'm alone and I'm miserable and I'm the only one in the entire world that is left that is doing the right thing for God and serving him. Never mind, just a couple weeks ago, I saw hundreds of people falling before the ground and worshiping Yahweh. But that mountaintop experience is over with and the high is gone and I still feel alone and I still am facing a tremendous battle that is yet to come. I think you've experienced in your own life, mountaintop experiences only last so long before reality kicks back in. Now, are they, are they, can God use them? Heck yes. But if you try to use the energy that you felt at that concert or camp and you try to live off of that, it won't work. They should drive you to God and then he sustains you. Yahweh said again, go out, so Yahweh said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. Look, Yahweh is ready to pass by. Now this is the exact same phrase that when Moses says, I want to see your glory, God. And God says, go to, to the face of the cave and I will pass by. So Moses, God is like, fine. You want to be another Moses? I'm going to make you another Moses. But here's what's interesting. A very powerful wind before Yahweh, um, sorry, a very powerful wind went before Yahweh, digging into the mountain and causing landslides. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the windstorm, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a soft whisper. When God appeared to Moses, he was in the fire, in the earthquake, in the wind. He was in it. He's not giving Elijah exactly what he wanted. He said, fine, you want fire and earthquakes and wind? I will give it to you. But it was all empty. It was all empty. Because he was going back to some past experience that he had with God. He's trying to recreate the circumstances. As the representative of Israel, Israel had an incredible moment with God, and God was there. And now he's trying to recreate those physical circumstances to reproduce the experience with God. It's kind of like if you prayed in a certain corner in your house, sitting on a certain pillow, reading a certain Bible, and God spoke to you very powerfully, and it really changed your life. And then months and months later, you feel like God hasn't spoke to you and things are going back to normal. And you go back and you grab that pillow and sit on it and go to the exact same corner and read the exact same Bible. And you try to recreate the moment. Or you go back to camp and you get in the same cabin and you try to find the same place at the campfire that you sat on when you try to recreate the moment. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've heard many, many people have done that. And I've heard many people come to camp and retreats and that kind of stuff. And they're like, it was right here. And they're like sitting there again. As if somehow the physical circumstances is what created that moment. Rather than where they were in their heart at that moment that allowed God to speak to them. And so God says, fine, you want the same circumstances? Here they are. But nothing happened, right? Because it's not the fire. It's not the wind. It's not that what changed Moses. That didn't change Moses. I changed Moses. But then it says, he came in a gentle whisper. Because here's the thing. 
Elijah doesn't need fire, wind, and earthquakes. He already just saw that on Mount Carmel, and it did not change him. He needs something different. For Moses, he needed the power of God. But Elijah needed the gentle, comforting voice of Yahweh. And God doesn't give you the same circumstances that person, that person had, or you had before. He gives you what you need in that moment. And he meets, he's not trying to recreate Elijah as another Moses. He's trying to speak to Elijah in the way that he needs to be spoken to in that moment. And here's what's interesting too. After the wind, when God spoke in a gentle voice, it said, Elijah heard it. He covered his face with his robe and went out and stood the entrance to the cave. He was told to stand at the mouth of the cave. Here's the prophet in chapter 18. He says, I am a prophet that stands before Yahweh. And then he's commanded to stand at the mouth of the cave. Like Moses stood at the mouth of the cave. But when all that stuff went by, he wasn't actually standing at the mouth of the cave. He was cowering inside of it. And what reveals is that he really isn't like Moses because he didn't have the ability to actually stand at the mouth of the cave like God commanded him to, like Moses did. He was actually scared out of his mind when that earthquake and fire and that wind came, which we all probably would have been too, because God wasn't in it. For him, it was just destructive, and God wasn't there. He was filled with fear. And once God had humbled him and put him in his place and reminded him, you don't control the narrative of being another Moses. I control the narrative. Then he came in and spoke to him gently. It's like disciplining your children. And you put them in time out. You discipline them. You say, you do not determine what happens in this house. God made me the authority. I guide you. But then after you do that, you hug them. You tell them how you love them. And you welcome them back into the family. And that's what God is doing. First, he had to scare the crap out of Elijah and put him in his place and remind him he doesn't control the narrative. He's been trying to control the narrative by going to Horeb. And now God is ready to comfort him and speak to him and saying, are you ready to listen to me now? When my girls are throwing tantrums and yelling whatever, it's like, put them in the spare bedroom, let them calm down. Two minutes later, I go up, and now they're ready to listen because they're calm. They've worn themselves out. And our, our conversations are far more productive when I don't speak and I send them away and come up later. If I try to speak in that moment, then they get frustrated and angry, and I get frustrated and angry, and it just turns into a bigger storm. And that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing. And then in that still voice, when he finally goes out to the cave with his hoodie pulled over his head, God asks him again, why are you here, Elijah? I didn't tell you to come here, and now you've discovered nothing worked out the way you thought it was going to. You didn't get what you want coming here. Why are you here? He answered, I am absolutely loyal to Yahweh, sovereign God. Even though the Israelites have abandoned the agreement they've made with you, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left. Now they went, they want to take my life. He just keeps repeating the same thing. And even though you might do all the right things as a parent, you're like, yes, I got it right this time. I did everything the classes told me to do, and I didn't lose my temper. You go up there and they're like, they, no, they're still wrong. You're like, oh my gosh. That's what Elijah is. He's like a little kid who's still saying, I'm the only one left. I'm completely loyal to God, and nothing's working out the way I wanted it to. 
He's basically saying, I don't care, God, I still quit. I still quit. And he's already said I quit. And when you say you want to die, that's a pretty powerful quit statement. He still wants to quit. And this is where God does something interesting. He says, okay, you can quit. Now, he doesn't say that point blank. But how do you know he can quit? Because the last thing God's going to tell him to do is find his replacement. And you usually don't find a replacement until you're ready to quit. You should find a replacement before you're ready to quit. It's called discipleship. But usually as humans, we don't do it until we're ready to quit. 